millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the Wonky Show. There's been a spate of student spiking. Is it an unfounded moral panic or should we be worried? Uh, cops coming up. We'll look at climate commitments made by universities ahead of the summit and the stuff on R&D and specialist provider funding. It's all coming up. But yes, if you look at the data, and that's why um, many women are, are, are quite rightly outraged, the, the number of people who go forward with complaints um, who are rebuffed with, well, you know, things about were you drinking, kind of victim blaming... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us understand what's occurring this week, a couple of brilliant guests in Westminster. Rachel Hewitt is Chief Exec at Million Plus. Rachel, your highlight of the week, please. Well, one of the things that I've been really enjoying is getting back onto university campuses and visiting our members. And this afternoon, I'm going to visit London Met, so looking forward to that. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. And in York, Pete Quinn is an inclusion consultant. Pete, your highlight of the week please um so we've got a, a family local to us whose uh, son has cerebral palsy during race day recently at york races which is usually a zombie apocalypse rather than a sporting event um they were doing a quick fundraising for a new chair for him which cost twenty-eight thousand pounds and just yesterday we learned that a number of anonymous benefactors have stepped in from that race event and from the publicity and they've raised the money for the chair good so yes we start this week with spiking reports have been circulating throughout the week of incidents of students who've been the victims of both drink and perhaps more concerningly needle spiking and Pete, students are fighting back. Yep, certainly are. And I think it's just, you know, we don't usually do this on the wonky show, but we're probably going to get into some quite uncomfortable and difficult territory in the next few minutes when we're talking about this. But essentially, um, students having their drinks spiked in nightclubs is not um, unfortunately an unusual thing. And, and in a previous life as a director of student support, there were always times of the year when you when that would bubble up and you'd hear about it and lots of students would, would be coming forward. What's different now is that the sort of coming forward anonymously with lots of shame, guilt and fear around it has turned into a, a different animal where quite rightly there's a lot of rage and anger that this is being permitted um, or allowed to, to take place or almost where in in supposedly spaces where they have security cctv etc etc the different thing is the horrific um awareness that um people have been ejected rather than having um liquid surreptitiously put into their drinks and, and there was a really interesting um chat that i saw on pippa Creer, who's a, a journalist for the mirror twitter feed of parents saying we give people cling film circles to put over their drinks what are we doing here and there's quite a lot of protests across the country you name a a region or a university and they're protesting about boycotting nightclubs um where this is is uh, taking place in significant numbers it appears um currently although there's there's a slight um hint of let's let's just keep it um proportional but let's not forget the fact that sexual assault has been um, a, a, 
an area of concern, quite rightly so, for a number of years. This isn't a new phenomenon. It's just the way that the drugs being administered is a new phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You know, I've read a couple of things today where, you know, experts, kind of, kind of medical experts are, uh, are suggesting that the kind of needle spiking thing might not be as prevalent as perhaps the, the the kind of fears that are being expressed around social media might suggest and i guess you know the the, the kind of jury's out on that sort of stuff but rachel i mean the I, i'm often struck by the 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 kind of work that goes into what we might call the kind of civic agenda which you know tends to be about economic impact and so on but actually some of this stuff around interacting with the the businesses and the places that students frequent perhaps from a licensing perspective in this case becomes just as important doesn't it yeah absolutely and i think um i think what you referenced about the sort of medical experts is a is a good point but i suppose it plays into the wider environment about um, you know, all the challenges we've seen and, and the concerns about things, um, you know, after the death of Sarah Everard and Sabina Nessa and the sort of wider environment. Um, and so I think there's more work to be done in this space. And, and it's not it's not an easy area to address, but I think there's certainly more work that needs to be done on this. Pete, the um, I, I see Pretty Patel has called on the police to kind of, you know, the old put a report on my desk in the morning thing. But, you know, there's there's a real question, isn't there, at this point about whether um, people will and whether they should trust what the police say about the prevalence of drink spiking. You know, I've, I I said on the site this week, I certainly in one in my previous life as a student union chief exec interacted with police who would say, well, it's all made up. It's just people that can't handle their drink and and the trouble is given the everard stuff that rachel references it is hard to put 100 percent trust in what the police say about prevalence um i i'd agree with you jim i think the uh, there's an important thing to be made here about people who have been impacted by this or their friends and families there, there are um sexual assault referral centers called sarks across um, across England, they, they, they exist in Scotland and Wales, perhaps under different names, but they are a kind of midpoint between police and also have trained individuals who can support um, victims of sexual assault. So I think it's important to, to reference those. But yes, if you look at the data, and that's why um, many women are, are, are quite rightly outraged, the, the number of people who go forward with complaints um, who are rebuffed with, well, you know, things about were you drinking kind of victim blaming and obviously the impact of these um, drugs mimic you know being extremely drunk and incapacitated so that's what um, many people seem to go to um, there have been really good examples though um, over the recent years where students unions universities have worked very collaboratively with these spaces um, to, to provide adequate training and linking with police um, and other support services locally so it can be done but I would be completely understanding of people who have lost faith in uh, in the police in terms of the effectiveness um, of how the criminal justice system receives complaints and processes them we know there's huge backlogs in the courts from underinvestment but i wouldn't want people to think well there's no point in raising it as an issue so the sexual assault referral centers student support services in universities are, are sadly well used to to working um in these sort of situations and there are many local organizations so the police aren't the single route to um to get support and uh, and resolution in these areas but the campaign i would suggest comes out of a lack of action over a long period of time 
come from police, law enforcement and other authorities uh, in terms of responding appropriately to this. Rachel, I mean, you know, I've spent part of this week, actually, for, 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 for a little bit of work I'm doing um, with Graham Towell from Durham. On, uh, I've actually been talking to previous NUS women's officers for, for much of the week. Um, and, you know, one of the things that has kind of come up a number of times in those conversations is that we still sort of, you know, 11 or 12 years on from NUS's Hidden Marks report, we still lack national prevalence data on sexual harassment and sexual assault, where, where loads of other countries kind of know the percentages of students that face this and so on. But yeah, in, you know, in, in, in around the UK, we, we're mainly still dealing with self-selecting surveys. You, you know, why is it, do you think, that we still don't really know the kind of depth and extent of the problem outside of this kind of, you know, viral human interest news story version of the problem. Yeah, I think it's probably partly because it's such a challenging issue to look into for the reasons that you say of, you know, it's a, it's a difficult area to do research on. But I I think um, that's not that's not really a, a good enough reason to, to not get into. Um, and as Pete says, it's it's going to rely on a collaborative approach really it's it should be seen as an issue that is everyone's problem and not either you know left to the police or or left to universities or or whatever else it needs to be looked at holistically and I think there is a real space for more research to be done on this so as you say we get a better sense of what the picture looks like. And, and Pete, just before we kind of finish on this, you know, one of the things that was bubbling around perhaps at the start of the week was, was some debate about some universities' approaches to talking to students about this and that fine line between personal safety information and victim blaming. And that, that line is becoming harder to draw, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's it's increasingly difficult and a, a well-meaning uh, message can uh, sound tone deaf or, or, you know, in the in the melee that, that is this time of the academic year when there's, there's much going on. But I would also point to active bystander training that's been taking place in universities for a while. And if you look at the commentary around this particular issue, where many incidences have been prevented is when male students or male club goers spot something going on and get involved and intervene and either stop it or warn people, which is not a solve all. But let's not wait for research to happen uh, to find out prevalence and why and wherefores. We know that active bystander interventions um, can be effective and and there's been a lot of work done on that in many universities. So if, if I was listening to this at home and I've got a kid at university, I'd be speaking to him in particular saying, if you see something like that happening, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Because people, you know, stand back and, and let others do it or are too afraid to act sometimes. And I think it's really important that that, that bystander initiative, because how are we going to solve this? It's not someone else's responsibility. It's all our responsibility, particularly men's. Good. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Alison Watson, Head of School for Leadership and Management at Arden University. My article takes a look at how the Netflix and skill approach can transform higher education. In a society where we get things on demand and are lured in by clever, intuitive algorithms, I decide to explore whether the journey through education should be shaped the same way. The past couple of years have shown us that the higher education system is outdated and slow to respond. I look at how the Netflix model could potentially transform higher education impacting how graduates fit into their first role post-graduation. I take a look at some of the main issues we are currently witnessing, 
the job market, for instance, is undergoing a huge shift and many employers are finding that a big issue is that graduates don't have all the skills they need for their job. I also explore why higher education institutions need to stop being afraid of technology and transformation. With intuitive algorithms, better preparing students than generalised courses, we can give eager learners the education they need and not simply the education they are paying for, ultimately concluding that the Netflix model could possibly guide students towards a course that is not only suited for them, but also ensures that they get all the skills they need to succeed in the workplace. Now, meanwhile, this week, ahead of the comprehensive spending review, there's been much discussion across the sector and in national politics, actually, about the importance of R&D spending. Rachel, what's going on here? Thanks, Jim. Yeah, as you say, there's been an increased focus on research funding ahead of next week's spending review. And this morning, we've seen a great new report from HEPI and the University of Lincoln focusing on how we can better distribute research funding geographically, Um, And it draws on some interesting international case studies, such as San Diego and and in Sweden, which I think is always an interesting angle to take. It aligns a lot with work we've been doing ourselves as as Million Plus. Um, So we published a report last week looking at um, this area of how we can support the levelling up agenda through research funding. Um, And my colleague, Connor McKenzie, wrote about it on the HEPI blog yesterday. And we came to a lot of similar conclusions that they come to in this report. So things around scaling up um, the high fund, increasing knowledge transfer partnerships, expanding strength in places fund and ensuring that the shared prosperity fund is is devolved. Um, And I think all of those areas are going to be really important if we think about the future of long-term uh, research and development funding. And uh, we're all intrigued to see what comes out of the spending review uh, next week. Pete, it must be tempting for Rishi Sunak with, you know, lots and lots of calls on uh, expenditure, presumably from next door, <laughs> um, to kind of put off some of this stuff that's about kind of, you know, investment in our in our future you know, you know that, that there's a there's a there's a real pressure there isn't there because because this kind of stuff is important but probably not a doddle to sell uh, into you know the, the the kind of people who do the two-page layout on the implications of the budget uh, i'd agree with you and it's really sad so you know kind of spending a lot of time internationally in in pre-pandemic the, the kind of soft power element of britain what we were known for was, you know, very high quality research, education, you know, kind of scientific powerhouse for, for such a small country, effectively. Um, I, I'm not particularly hopeful, I'm afraid, um, in, in many domains around this. I don't think, and, and you could see uh, recent policy decisions, you know, um, levelling up is not at the forefront of, of the actual agenda. You know, it's what what they could potentially um, get away with not funding. And I think universities are not in a strong place. I think we, we made some good arguments around um, our response to the pandemic and obviously the, the, the vaccines and the, and the other knowledge that's come out of that. But I would argue this government isn't particularly scientifically minded and they're not looking or listening to research a lot of the time. So, I, you know, I'm afraid I'm a little pessimistic when usually I'm insanely optimistic about many things. Mm. Rachel, obviously, you, you know, I, I guess one of the, you know, one of the things about the stuff you've talked about and the, you know, the, 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 the report out this week, on one level or another says, look, there is a considerable concentration of research funding right now. And that has geographical implications. And, you know, the levelling up agenda is fundamentally a geographical agenda, right? 
Um, but it reminds me a little bit of the widening access debate over the last 15 or 20 years, which is it's easy to say more poor kids should go to uni. It's much harder to say let's have fewer middle class kids go to uni. So it's easy to say more research funding should flow into newer universities, for example, partly because of the levelling up agenda and the geography. It's really hard to take that off. Uh, the current research powerhouses, isn't it? Yeah, I think that is absolutely true, and it's a it's a, ch- a challenging issue to be grappling with. I think, I suppose, in the area of research and development, there is a sort of it's quite a simple argument in that you can see the sort of concentration um, of research funding at the moment, and there are some quite simple ways in which that can be addressed to some degree. Um, you know, with those sort of funds that I've already talked about. So in some ways, it's a it's an easier argument to explain, but I agree that it's difficult when there's uh, one pot of money and how that pot of money is distributed um, is, uh, is is certainly a challenge. But I think it does ben- it's one of those areas in HE where it does benefit from a sort of a simple-ish argument. It's not as complicated as it might seem. Yeah. Pete, if, in, in, an, in an ideal world... Outside of the sort of jokey way that I've seen Boris Johnson do this, what sort of things do you think the government ought to be doing to remind us, as, as, as I guess, as taxpayers, that this is a this that this sort of stuff is a sound bet? Well, I just thought if you look across um, recent times with pandemic, we've got some great evidence that. Um, you know, universities across the country have provided uh, really important research, and there's a lot of tech. Um, developments that are coming out of different universities um, around uh, infrastructure around more effective roads about we'll be talking about sustainability shortly but so so there is a broad spread of of, of really effective um, outcomes but the, the the other problem is that r&d takes time and and you know we're in a very rapidly changing cycling um, environment these days globally and it, and there isn't that time to sit and reflect on on you know what's really helped we hear about all the things that came out of nasa uh, and and those kind of large-scale re- research developments um but but it's harder to put a good story together about some of the the uh, successes in the uk of which there are many especially if you read um, the pink paper on a weekend now every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with nottingham trent's academic registrar mike ratcliffe here's the hidden history of he so the government is very keen on modularization they like the idea that we can have smaller qualifications that you could take one of the long-standing issues in the sector has been what can we do to have a decent sub-degree course. Anyone with a credit framework will be aware that we have a fallback award, another qualification sitting in the way if you don't make it all the way, the Diploma of Higher Education, the DIPHE. Now, we accept this is a 240 credit uh, award, it's the first two years of a course, it's now a fallback award of its own, but this is a comparatively new invention. It stems from the James Committee in 1972. James Committee was set up to look at teacher education. And in an interesting mixture of cost-cutting and uh, philosophical uh, pragmatism, he had this idea that what we wanted was a diploma in higher education as a first stage for those people who wanted to become teachers, particularly for those teachers in first and middle schools, but also those who were going to take non-specialist teachers of adolescence who are needed in secondary schools and FE colleges. 
honours degree students could go on and teach the kind of things you might take to A-level, but people needed to be able to teach general things. They'd have a small amount of specialisation, but also a small amount of general studies in them. So this would be good. It was also helpful because the colleges of education that now needed to diversify could offer these DIPHEs. They didn't have to have the kind of specialisation that you would need for the research part at the end of an honours degree, and therefore they could offer them. They were, of course, also cheaper and quicker. But the James Committee recommendations got caught. Firstly, there were major changes happening to teacher education anyway, but they couldn't dislodge the movement that had already happened in terms of converting certs in education, certificates of education, into the B.Ed. degrees that slowly were taking hold. So it didn't really get picked up that strongly in teacher education. His three phases didn't work. It was too complicated. But the sector was already working away. This was a new qualification. Working parties got going at a national level. Um, There was a large complication about how this would work across the new binary divide, with both universities thinking how they could develop DPHEs, but also the CNAA. And the CNAA made the big running on this. They set out the criteria in which you could take one of these courses. And early adopters started to become particularly innovative. This included the Northeast London Polytechnic School of Independent Study, which offered its DPHE in a much broader way that people could build their own programme and develop their own qualification. The key boost for the DPHE was its adoption by nursing, midwifery and health visiting as the qualification that they would take. They wanted a short cycle qualification. And so DPHEs in those subjects became the, by far the majority of DPHE awards, by far the majority of subdegrees probably ever awarded. That was a boost. Now, obviously, they've now moved on to degrees. The DPHE is no longer quite the thing it was. But this was still in play when Hefke was trying to boost subdegrees. You could get additional student numbers for offering DPHEs, but quickly confused by the introduction of foundation degrees. So DPHE slowly fell away. I went and checked. As far as I can see on UCAS, there is one DPHE currently being offered across the entire country as a standalone qualification. Uh, and that's at the Point Blank Music School. Now I might have checked UCAS differently, but in all the thinking about where we go level four or five qualifications, all the idea of where we go with subdegrees, the waxing and waning of different types of qualifications is there. And the DPHE has now had its day. Now, with COP26 imminent, a group of universities led by Universities UK have made some pledges. Pete, what are they going to do? So, uh, we've got 140 universities under the umbrella of UK have agreed some sector-wide climate change targets. And what, in effect, these means that they've, they've undertaken to cut emissions by 78% by 2035 on 1990 levels. There are a number of... Um, exceptions to the kind of um the the broad response which has been suggested to be a bit um of rhetoric unfortunately given that we've got we were just talking about the leading edge research that we've got in this country particularly around climate change but the um aspirations given by the universities to cut emissions have been um the minimum level the basic level although you could argue that that um, mirrors what the government's su- suggesting as well. A um, couple of notable exceptions in Glasgow and Kiel who have gone beyond, um, you know, the kind of bare minimum. Um, but the, the the key thing is there are three target areas that they've got to meet, three scopes they're called, and still there hasn't been um, 
an announcement or a sense of what universities are going to do around scope three, which involves international travel. And there's a real tension there between um, international students um, flying over to the UK to study, uh, fieldwork trips, those kind of things, versus our recent experience and knowledge about online learning and how we could reduce emissions. So there's a real tension there um, around that kind of scope three, as, it, as is described, uh, levels. So um, the, a bit of a damp squib, potentially, in terms of expectations. And my thought around this would be that we know that there is that um, many of our um, kind of newer students, uh, younger generations are very conscious and very focused on this as an issue. And if your community or your uh, university isn't living up to your expectations, it's another um, potential area of, of disquiet and discomfort um, in terms of studies. Rachel, uh, the, uh, you know, I've read crit- critique of this stuff that, you know, as Pete says, basically says, why is the higher education sector kind of matching the bare minimum when you know it ought to be given what it knows about the climate and the kind of understanding it's generated about the kind of scale of the challenge it ought to be uh leading the way and uh you know doing much more than the rest of society yeah i mean i suppose my counter to that would be that um universities have got so many competing demands at the moment in terms of sort of recovering from from covid and and with you know endless policy changes going on that i do think it's good that there is space being made for work to be done in this. And I think it's um, it's good that Universities UK are, are pushing on with this work and, you know, not being distracted by the 20 other things going on uh, every day. But I think you're right. I think there's room for universities to do more. And in some ways, I think universities, um, you know, may look to differentiate themselves to students by showing that they're really committed to sustainability and, and looking to go above and beyond this sort of, um, sector wide work. Uh, it's an interesting area is something that, um, has largely consensus across, you know, both university staff and across, across students as an area of importance. So I think it's good to see, it's good to see work going on in the space. And there definitely is work, uh, space for more work to be done on this. I, I think there's something around disengagement from you know your community it's just another thing to be uh, frustrated about about your institution your the way you have your meaning and purpose and i think it, it's another thing to get disaffected about is that you're not living your values i think that might be there, there was a thing about divestment and and um the evidence around that versus uh, you know plant a tree carbon capture and, and actually that's not seen to be as effective as it was once thought And finally, the Office for Students has announced a consultation on the funding for specialist higher education providers. Rachel, what's in there? Yeah, so this is, I think this is quite a good wonkish topic. Um, uh, So the OFS are consulting on how they fund specialist HE providers and they classify those as where at least 75% of students are studying broadly the same subject and those... um, who have less than 500 students. So quite a sort of uh, niche area. And of course, there's really important work that's done by HE providers in this space, uh, you know, in the art space and the science space. Of course, they are only ever a small proportion of the sort of overall um, uh, HE providers and, and student body. And it's quite a different aspect to other universities, because of course, most universities aim to be multidisciplinary and broad learning environments that bring together a range of different faculties. So it's interesting to see the sort of 
focus in the consultation on these on these areas and in some way there's some legacy issues coming through from um from Hefke but I suppose you know my I my uh, interest in this partly plays into how it fits into the wider funding challenges that we're going to see potentially coming over the next few weeks with the um with the CSR coming mm. Pete what caught your eye here um, it's mainly I, I do quite a bit of work with um, you know some independent HE um, providers and and more recently I've been working with quite a number of small arts and drama organisations uh, around their responses to Black Lives Matter um, and you know just inclusion in general when they're working at such a small scale. So I I think what um, what was really important here was about there there is um, a value to keeping these small providers funding them properly and effectively because they do um, create uh, opportunities particularly in social mobility for um, for individuals and there um, there are many pathways to uh, employment from them but the economies of scale argument is is the real one here is that they just aren't able to benefit from existing funding and it's a real um, challenge for them all the time you know so that, that did kind of distracts from that core purpose and mission which is often a very valuable one and it's again that it, it harks back to me again to this kind of soft power piece that um we're, we're gradually ebbing away if it's still there even you know we've lost the british council uh to, to a great extent and these really small specialist providers in the uk really add to that um that kind of soft power basis across the world in that we're still able to to sustain them um, many other places never had them in the first place or have lost them uh, so it's, it's a really valuable part of our kind of education ecosystem i would argue rachel obviously there are a lot i mean there's a lot of very small kind of virtually single subject providers on the ofs register um and you know on the on, on the site this week dk has kind of pointed out that you know ofs the the the, the 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 outcomes and metrics obsessed regulator is kind of struggling to find outcomes or metrics that would enable it to work out what which of these providers are world leading or world class or whatever it is that they've used in the consultation this idea of you know which ones do you pick out for the to get their slice of the 5 million yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this very much reminds me of my time at HESA where, you know, there were particular challenges for very small institutions in terms of the metrics often just didn't quite work for the way that they operated. And I suppose I'm all for the role of metrics, you know, in the way that we talk about our HE system, but this really demonstrates the need for them being used in context with other wider information and that we can't just rely uh, on metrics to be- understand these issues. I think this is going to be a particular one where, you know, we need we need a broader contextual picture to be able to be clear about how we define world leading. But that's tricky, isn't it, Pete? Because once you're, you know, once you've got a bunch of kind of qualitative, uh, you know, analyses around world cle- leading or world class or, you know, culturally important or whatever... You know, you are you're back in that thing, aren't you, about what is valuable to society, you know, which which forms of education get to, you know, kind of get the tick. And this is, you know, this is ongoing, has been going on for two, three years, bound to be a kind of dominant theme in the CSR. This whole value, value for money and value thing is, is never ending, isn't it? Oh, it's and it's it. it. It's really difficult because how do you know how what impact it had? Do you take them all away and see what's different? Um, and 
and, and that's kind of you know there are there are unfortunately many areas in universities where you just can't quite put your finger on why it's working and why it's effective unless you just removed it altogether and saw what what that would lead to the loss of um i i just genuinely when i um you know go and work in educational institutions overseas there is that admiration for many um smaller providers who are are doing this what you could describe as a niche work i absolutely agree the qualitative um, piece needs to come to the fore in i think these areas but it, it is such a shame when kind of metrics overtake value of and i don't mean the the kind of economic value i mean the the real um, cultural value and the real societal value and and if you just um, do a spreadsheet exercise on it um, you can really lose so much that's valuable and i would say is, is really characteristic of you know the great britain i i it just jars to me now when you see world beating or world leading it just it's it seems i think the government in using that overusing it on absolutely every metric and dynamic have kind of taken the the real emphasis off um it, it's almost meaningless now it's just turned into a tokenistic term and it's, it's a real shame but i think you know we, we really need to to fight for these smaller um impactful uh cultural institutions uh, otherwise we, we just lose so much and t- and you don't realize that until they're gone right so my other question right for, for particularly in terms of your providers is you know no doubt if you if you're a small provider you've I mean, got like you know 450 students or whatever you know it's moderately precarious economies of scale blah 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 but in your membership for example you must have quite large universities that nevertheless have got kind of schools or departments that are world-renowned world-leading probably need a level of subsidy to keep the quality up and so on and they are you know that's not in this consultation is it yeah it's not included within this consultation i suppose this consultation doesn't uh necessarily mean that those can be supported in other ways um uh, there's obviously quite a focus on small and specialists but it is interesting about what has driven the focus on small and specialist institutions um, when, as you say, some of those areas could be applied to universities more broadly and and work going on within universities. But I think some of those messages are difficult to get across. Um, People tend to look at universities holistically. Mm. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Rachel, Pete, Mike, everyone at Team Wonky that makes the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.